You're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Ahmed Munawar, founder and chief marketing officer at Boutique Growth, where we help professional services firms build actionable marketing plans so they can generate more leads and win more business. I've got a heck of a conversation for you here with Nick DeSabato of Draft. Nick is a designer. He's a user experience and A-B testing expert, but I didn't bring him on the show to teach you about design and A-B testing. I brought him on the show because you need to hear the story about how he built his solo design consultancy draft into the monster that it is today. You know, Nick is really one of the best case studies that I can think of, of how a solo entrepreneur, solo consultant, solo professional has built an entire empire around him through his products and through his services. And I think there's a ton that you can learn on how to expand the scope and the reach of what you're offering from this interview. You want to grab the show notes to this episode, head over to forecast.fm slash draft. That's forecast.fm slash draft. Before I let you go, if you haven't yet joined us inside our free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms, that is something you're going to want to check out right now. Inside the course, you're going to get a step-by-step process to generate a flood of new business for your firm. Best of all, it is 100% free of charge, and you can grab immediate access to the course at 5leadgen.com. You can spell out five or use the number. Either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. With that, here is Nick DeSabato. Hey, Nick, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So give us the quick backstory. What, where, where have you been? What have you done? Where'd you come from? I started as a UX designer and uh, still kind of do that a little bit at this point. But I was working on a bunch of independent projects in like 2012. And I've been in business for about two or three years, just working independently and wanted to come up with something that was kind of the intersection of things I can do for design or UX design, whatever that is in very broad sense. And then things I can do on retainer, like what's the Venn diagram overlap of those two things. And I thought, well, A-B testing is interesting because it allows you to kind of measure the economic impact of design decisions and you're never done with it. So, you know, you can hire me basically into perpetuity. I've had some people that have worked with me for multiple years doing A-B testing. So I launched this service called Draft Revise. Go to draft.nu slash revise. And it got blogged by Patrick McKenzie as one of the best marketing pages he had ever seen two days later. And uh, my server crashed and sold out since. So (laughs) that's basically the short of it. It, you know, led me down a road of A-B testing and optimization. And I still try and create a focus on the design process and how we can use research to come up with testing ideas. But that's the short of it. So, you know, one thing I love about your website, it jumps out at me every time I see it is it's very simple. It's Mm -hmm. very, very minimal. It's a lot of text. And then at some point you discover, hey, this guy's a designer. (laughs) And then you're thinking, wow, like this is not what I'd expect to see in a designer's website. Tell me a little bit about that thought process. 
Yeah, there's no portfolio, and the biggest contributor to page weight, it's 85% web fonts. So it's almost entirely text. There are SVGs of my logo and a portrait of myself that my friend drew. And the reason behind that is there's kind of twofold. One of them is I believe that words are part of the design and the way that you're communicating matters. So I spend a great deal of time focusing on the pitch as a result and believe that I am. You can critique copy in the same way that you critique design. And so I, I do that. I do that to myself and I have my friends do that and people that I trust when I'm batting around marketing pages and stuff like that. The second thing is a little bit more nuanced. It's I should be focusing on the results that I'm creating for my clients. And I already have a big enough portfolio that I can basically link to other places and they speak for itself, right? There's so many designers where when they, they put up a portfolio, it's literally just a grid of screenshots of their work. And that's the least interesting bit of it, right? Like it's just, I don't care how the thing looks. I care how you came to that. And I care how it communicates and, and frankly, how it performs, right? Because you can have a very pretty website that doesn't work well. You can have a very ugly website that does work well. You can, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you can think of exceptions of examples of both of those. And so I don't know if just like flexing my Photoshop chops is quite what I want to be doing when I'm communicating. What I want is to establish a rapport with the reader, make it un, you know clear that I have done this before and that I'm a safe bet and I'm capable of solving their expensive problems for them. So I don't think that it makes sense for me to be just putting screenshots on the site because people kind of it's like moths to a porch light. Like people go feral when they look at the pictures, you know, they just focus on the pictures and I get it. They're, we're all very visually oriented. So, yeah. No, I think it's instructive, not just for designers, for everybody. I find designers are kind of notoriously bad at this, right? It's they're, The story on their website is, hey, I'm a really good designer, but so what? <laughs> there are a lot of yeah. good designers out there. What you've done is you've taken that a few steps further and said, A-B testing, revenue, leaky funnels, like the kind of terminology that a business owner wants to see. And you almost have to look like you almost have to like look really hard to figure out that, oh, he's a designer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mentioned that a bunch of times on the page. And then if you come in the door and apply, first thing I do is send along what's called a welcome packet. And the very first paragraph is like, I'm a designer first and a like CRO growth hacker like 80th. If that is not what you want, run, you know, <laughs> please. Like I am coming in and I am going to be suggesting a bunch of design research very boldly the second that I join your Slack team. And if that horrifies you, run, you know, <laughs> hopefully it doesn't horrify you and we can work together and have a nice professional relationship. But but yeah, yeah, it's it's a good way to qualify out clients and find people that like get you. You know, I think by the time you've paid me, we've already had such a long process of getting to know each other that it's my thing to lose. Like I know that it makes sense and you know that it makes sense and we both feel really quite comfortable about it. You see, what I love about that is I think a lot of folks, not just in the design space, but, you know, consultants, professionals, anyone that's listening really, they feel like they need to communicate the secret sauce right there on the website. It's all got to be up there, right? Like how we work, how we do it, you know, what our process is, all the magic has to be right there so that yeah. people can consume it and then and they'll want to work with you. You've done the opposite. You know, there's not a whole lot of the secret sauce on that page. There's business problems, there's results, there's positioning, there's authority. But the mm -hmm. secret sauce, like you only have that conversation around, hey, I'm a designer first after a client's already been onboarded. 
right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's kind of two places where the secret sauce exists, and one of them is in my books and courses. So if you, you know, go and buy a copy of the A-B testing manual or Cadence and Slang, you can take that and fire me. You know, it's there. You've paid for it, so fine, I guess I get money, question mark. And then the other place is buried on the site. If you go to draft.nu slash method, I talk about my process in a very high level way because it is something that I can name and refer back to that aids in I want it to aid in the thought leadership bit without having people beeline to it and gain a sense of expectation about what the actual engagement is. So the first thing that I say on that page is uh, I basically undermine myself by saying this is what the process is. Significant caveat. The first thing that we're going to do when we begin working together is torch this document because you come in with the best of intentions, right? You say, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and do it this way and it's going to be great. I've never had an engagement go the best of intentions way, (laughs) you know, and I don't think that that sort of admission It took me a while to realize that that's an admission of vulnerability and that that puts me in a position of strength and not an admission of incompetence, right? Because it's not incompetence if I come into a client and I, uh, I'll cite an example client recently. I came in and they're like, you're going to do A-B testing. I'm like, great, I'm going to do A-B testing, A-B testing, A-B testing, A-B testing. I look at their Google Analytics. I'm like, did you know that all of your pages take 17 seconds to load on an, a smartphone and <laughs> your traffic is 88% smartphones? And they're like, no, that's horrifying. I'm like, I agree. Let's do something about it. And you know what I did for the next month? Didn't a- do any A-B testing, you know? <laughs> I compressed their images and removed all of their JavaScript and did all of the like horrible grunt work cleanup that their technical debt had accrued. And you know what? Their conversion rate went up by 9%. The goal is to make the conversion rate go up by 9%. That would be really nice. And if I have to do it by like, you know, getting down in the trenches and doing something filthy, like that's fine. That is fine. You're still creating the outcome in that situation. And, you know, I don't think that the client in question, they were never frustrated or angry at the fact that I made their conversion rate go up by 9%. (laughs) They were pretty happy about it. Yeah. We get paid for the results, not for the process after all, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the products because I'm glad you brought that up. You know, you've got the book, you've got some courses, you've got some videos, you've got, seems like a pretty robust product side of the business. A lot of folks might be nervous to go down that route. I mean, they might start thinking, well, if I give away the secret sauce, give away my process, if I teach people how to do it, then why would they come and hire me? How do you get around that? There are some people who just won't pay you, you know, and they don't want to pay you. They never did, but they would pay you for the secret sauce. What usually people are doing is they come in, buy a copy of the A-B testing manual, and I email them like two days later. If they have any questions, they ask me a couple of questions about A-B testing. And uh, they flip through it. And five days later, I get an application for draft revised because they're like, this is hard, but you seem to know what you're doing. (laughs) So uh, the analogy is probably best with cookbooks. Like, I don't I think that if you look at a celebrity chef that makes a cookbook, especially like a high end one, like Grand Ackett's with Alinea, which is like a three Michelin starred restaurant here in Chicago. He sells a cookbook that's like $90 coffee table, full bleed image, extremely fancy book. I have cooked zero recipes out of that cookbook. 
But I look at that and I'm like, this guy knows what he's doing. Everything is in grams and the photography is impeccable. And I would rather not go out and buy agar agar and do gelatins in my kitchen. I'd rather, you know, spend, frankly, you know, a couple hundred dollars to make him do it. And I think that there is a huge lesson in especially high touch, like bespoke consulting there, because what you do probably is hard and it probably is terribly specialist. And if you've positioned yourself well, then you're speaking to the right people. And so, you know, should you have all that on lock? My recommendation is get that on lock and then put out a book. Right. So I guess there's really two kinds of buyers that, that I can see, right? You've got the DIYers, right? They're, they're the guys that are never going to hire you. They want to learn the secret sauce. They want to figure it out for themselves, try it on their own. Whether they succeed or fail is a separate matter, but they're not going to hire you anyways. They don't have the money. They're not the right client, so on and so forth. And then yeah. there are actual, like real legitimate qualified buyers, the people that you know would hire you for draft revise. The question that I think people might have is, do they actually buy the book first or they just skip to hire you? I would say it's about 70, 30, buy the book, skip to hire me. So about 70% of people buy the, a book. So it could be AB testing manual. Some people buy Cadence and Slang, which is just a more like general project manage type book about interaction design. But, you know, however you get in the front door, if you have the need, you understand what it is I'm offering. You know, everybody wants the platonic ideal of, you know, hundreds of customers shimmying up the product ladder, but it's not quite as clean as that in practice. No, but I think what you just proved this idea that, you know, real buyers don't want books. They want to hire expensive consultants. That may be true, but the book, I guess it's an easier, you know, risk free way to kind of get started and get to know you before I make that leap to hire you, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's also just some people will look at the fact that I have a book. They look at the marketing page and they're like, you wrote a book. I was like, yeah, is it a good book? I'm like, probably. Here's free copy. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's a good book. OK, great. <laughs> like people just say it's a book or it's a course and you get like a certain sort of status bump from having done that, you know, especially because I've written, you know, I published two physical books and two digital books. And one of them is like a big video course. Like I feel like there was another level up when I did the physical book and another level up when I did the big video course. I think those help me, you know, speak at conferences, get a higher profile, guest on podcasts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like it definitely aids in your ability to you're effectively doing inbound marketing in that situation and, and getting your name out there. And it helps your status as a trusted consultant. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take a step back now. And I want to better understand you know, when you kind of made that leap from, you know, freelancer doing interesting work, doing, you know, good work, getting paid well, you made this leap to starting draft revise and you settled on, you know, what they now call a productized service model. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that model over any other model? Well, kind of going back to the beginning, I wanted to do something on retainer. So the productized model came out because I wanted to do something that was relatively closed-ended so I could manage my scope and not burn out, right? So I can have a fixed number of clients come in the door and I'm managing my time well and I'm able to serve everybody fairly. A-B testing is especially conducive to this. You get a certain number of tests every month on a certain number of websites every month. Do you want to expand the scope? Great. We just hit a limit. There you go. And I don't think that's bad. I think that's it's good way to tackle it. But if you have more of a nebulous, like, I'll just hang out in your Slack room type retainer, <laughs> I found it's not really quite as good on, on the productized consulting side of things. So. 
So I'm curious to hear more about kind of whether you feel, uh, you know, creatively at least, you know, whether you feel like that's constraining at all, because you're a designer, you're a creative guy, you're good at what you do. You've got this model now, it's focused on A-B testing. Do you ever feel like I could be doing all this other work, but I, I can't because I have this model? Um, sometimes. So the challenge when I come up with a new service is I already have an existing positioning and I already have an existing set of products. So if I come up with some sort of cracked out wildcard thing, I'm probably going to like look at it and say, okay, well, this doesn't actually fit into anything else that I'm doing. So I have to take a much more sober, clear eyed view of it and say, should I actually be doing this? Is it a gigantic, shiny distraction? Is not doing it going to make me sad? Because that definitely is an influence. And there are some times when I'll put things out that don't really totally fit my positioning. And they're, um, I don't want to say a passion project and I'm getting paid for it, but they're still, you know, there are things that are like, and you also wrote this book of essays. Like last year I did that and it was like a mid-career retrospective and one of them was 1,600 words about a sandwich I ate once. <laughs> and and I, right? Like I do this weird stuff and I'm doing it, I'm doing it for people because I don't want to waste their time. But I'm also are doing it because I want to do it. You know, people ask me often if I get bored with the A-B testing bit. And I think I've more just like clarified how to have a decent relationship with it in my design practice. Like it's evolved a lot in the past three or four years. And I think if I was doing the same job three years ago as I was doing now, I would go insane. But the fact that I have way fewer clients and a better set of criteria about what constitutes a good fit, and I spend a lot more time focusing on the research end of it and on the writing end of it, I think that has allowed me to evolve the work in a way that, that kind of allows me to you know, have my cake and eat it too, so to speak. So you've effectively, Does that make sense? You've developed other, other outlets for that creativity outside of that core draft revised service. Is that right? Yeah. And it's like there's the outlets. There's coming up with new launches that always keeps things interesting. And most of the time it does fit with my positioning. Because I think, you know, writing the A-B testing manual was a very different task than fulfilling a draft revise engagement. And so that's interesting. And it keeps me from, from getting bored or um, thinking that I'm just kind of spinning my wheels forever. Yeah, for sure. So the other thing that jumps out at me about you and, and your business and the way that you run things is you've got a really, really heavy dose of personality that really yeah. comes across in all of your communication from that web page that we talked about to recently joined your email list, you know, essays about sandwiches, right? There, there's a lot. Yeah. Of, and even in this interview, like I'm really getting a really good sense of who you are as a person we just met. Is that very deliberate or is that just kind of who you are? I think it's mostly who I am. I don't think I put on an act during my day. I think that I had, I had a relatively unique background. Like I went to a tiny school for nine years and I knew the same 32 people and grew up in a very like private and quiet environment. So it allowed me to kind of develop my own voice with a relative amount of impunity and especially my online voice. I think that you're getting Nick DeSabato, whether online or offline, whether at a conference or on my email list or on this podcast. Podcast. I don't think I put on like podcast Nick DeSabato all of a sudden and then I go and, you know, cook dinner with my partner and it's a different type of person. But I do think that I've did an episode with my friend Kai Davis about this recently about like how to cultivate and develop a strong, consistent voice because mine is less tactical or business oriented and more just like, ah, how, what, what's the actual quality of it? 
it's more just like comfortable in my own skin, like who I am and finding a way to express that so that I can kind of stay honest to whoever is listening to or reading or whatever I'm doing, but also to myself. Right. Yeah. No, I think this is something that people struggle with. Right. So people always question how much of my personality do I share? Does it make me look unprofessional? Will people respect me if I'm too personable or too personal in my communications? And I feel like you've kind of yeah. you've struck this balance, right, where your personality comes through pretty clearly. You've got your quirks. You talk about, you know, random things on your on your newsletter. But you also clarify when I sign up that you're going to get, you know, some musings and some interesting things that may not be A-B testing or design related. And so right. I kind of I know what I'm getting, right? I'm getting a little dose of Nick, some entertainment, some, you know, some musings, but I'm also getting some really, really good advice. So it comes with the territory. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to like constantly wander into like overly personal territory all the time because people are there for research driven insights about A-B testing, right? Like, so if, if, you know, the latest email that I wrote on my mailing list was about effectively content marketing strategies. And there was one sentence at the very beginning that summed up things that I had done in the previous week. And I listed like a podcast I guessed it on and a most recent like revised weekly lesson. And one of the points was my dog wandered into a boxing gym. End of point. I got like a hundred replies about the dog wander- wandering into the <laughs> boxing gym. People really liked it because it's charming and funny. And I think that if you are polite and considerate and fundamentally respect the person's time and attention and interests and you do what you can to be empathetic around those things, that's hard. Right. That's none of that is an easy task. But if you do that, you can basically get licensed to be as weird as you want. (laughs) That and I think people tend to forget that, you know, we're not as consumers anyways. We're not just looking for information. Anybody can provide information. Information is easily available. You can Google anything in the world and you'll learn it. Right. But what keeps us hooked on that information, what keeps us coming back for more is the information or the education paired with entertainment and personality and wit. Yeah, I think so. I think that's one way that you can grow an audience because people, they're interested in the value that they're getting out of it because I don't BS around that at all. But they're also interested in the person, right? They care about the teacher. And there are a lot of people you could probably think of on the web that have interesting, forceful personalities that come out in the way that they they manifest as educators. And I think that's pretty inspirational and something to, to be considering for your own practice. Yeah, I was reading Kai's newsletter recently. We had Kai on the show uh, last week, and he said that somebody uh, on his list was kind of complaining about the the daily. Oh, I think he mentioned this in the podcast, actually, now that I think about it. He said somebody mm. on his list was kind of complaining about the daily emails because Kai sends out this daily email newsletter. But she was mm-hmm. like, I, I, you know, it's too many emails, but I just can't unsubscribe. <laughs> Yeah. And I feel the same way about Kai's newsletter. And I joined yours recently. I've been on Philip Morgan's newsletter for a long time. And it's like, you know, the information's good. But to be honest, I'm not sure that's what's keeping me there. It's I like the personality. I like that they land in my inbox. I like reading about their day and and the things that they observe. and, And that's what keeps me hooked. Yeah. Kai, Philip, and me all kind of have a very YOLO attitude about our mailing lists, although mine is weekly, right? It's just like, you know what? I'd rather be like gregarious weirdo on my mailing list than boring. You know, I, I do everything in my power to not be boring. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that is something that um, 
maybe people struggle at, but I don't. It's also one of those things. It's very hard to convey, right? Like my I talked about the difficulties of this on my podcast episode with Kai, where it was like, you know, get in a time machine and grow up in a 32 person graduating class in your school. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Or like just instead of caring about what other people think about you, don't care about what other people think about you. There wasn't that easy. Like, no, <laughs> it, it gets into like life coach territory. Right. And I don't I'm not a life coach. I'm disastrous at that sort of stuff. So, like, I don't even know how to help other than to cite examples and and kind of make the contours of the mindset as clear as I possibly can. Sure. So let's jump back to the business a little bit. I'm curious sure. about when you launched Draft Revise. Did you launch with the service idea first and kind of figure out the target market or did you have a market in mind when you launched? I was thinking about SaaS businesses to begin with, mostly because it was what I knew. I had worked with a handful in the past and when I, you know, I would speak at conferences, it would typically be at SASE conferences with other SaaS business owners. And when I was reading blog posts about businesses, it was all SaaS stuff. It has moved more and more in an e-commerce direction in the past three, four years. So I had that market in mind and I was writing to their concerns, things like churn and LTV and stuff like that. But it's changed, and I think that's okay. Any big surprises there? Like, are you surprised you went down that road, or did it just kind of happen naturally? I'm not surprised about much anymore. (laughs) I don't think so. I think in hindsight it made sense because e-commerce businesses tend to operate in volume more than SaaS businesses. So it's easier to get to, like, statistically significant results for A-B tests. So if you tell me, you know, an e-commerce store that does $6 million a year can, you know, have 5,000 transactions a month versus SaaS business that's, you know, they're maybe doing 150, 200, something like that. Yeah, you're you're on the lower bound of A-B testing with that situation. So it's much easier to get results from e-commerce stores. They're also probably pulling in like stock themes on Shopify or Big Cartel. So their, their site is a feral disaster to begin with. And so there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. So just looking at the like data of it, it makes perfect sense that that I would be moving more in an e-commerce direction because it's where the expensive problem is more acutely felt and where I'm able to exert more influence over it. Yeah, I find that's an issue where a lot of people just kind of trip up, right? Picking that target market, they, you know, I've got clients right now that are struggling with that, right? They're really overthinking it, overanalyzing it. And my advice to them is just just start, right? Pick one and it'll evolve. And it sounds like that's what happened in your experience. Yeah, I picked one and it evolved and it evolved slowly and not without a lot of stress. Like I definitely like wrung my hands about whether to wholesale abandon SaaS or embrace e-commerce whole hog or how to finesse the wording around it. Mm. And that was like two years of business development, (laughs) just like it, it did not come easily. But it's better to start with something because then you have a business to develop like it's better to have a business that's broken and weird than to not have a business, you know? Yeah. That's that's what happens when you have maybe soggy positioning or you're not controlling the conversation around your work or you are the designer that just has pictures on your homepage of things you did once. You're not controlling that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So last question here for you, Nick. When I look at what you've done over at Draft and Draft being like the entire ecosystem that you've built there, to me, that's a case study in how to really build kind of a solo entrepreneur, solo professional empire. 
there's so many things there. What you're most known for is most certainly Draft Revised, but there's, you know, Revised Express, there's the newsletter, there's a paid newsletter, there's the book, there's the course. What's the grand plan there? Like, is there, are you, you know, do you step back and like map this thing out on paper? Does it kind of all come together? Like, how do you develop all these new offerings and products and solutions? I have a gigantic flowchart in OmniGraffle that has every product offering that I have and the marketing strategy to get you either in to buy the thing or to move you from one product to the next. That's what I was talking about before with the product ladder that like, obviously it's way sloppier than like, oh, you you found out about me on here. Now you're buying this book. Now you're buying this thing. No, it never happens that way. But I have the strategy. So to answer your question, yes, it is absolutely mapped out on paper, mostly for my eyes only. Like I've posted it in a couple of places, and uh, but I'm not like ballyhooing it to the sky. Kurt Elster has a printout of it on his wall in his office, like just as like this is what this is. The reason I'm doing that is easy to identify missing offerings but especially missing marketing strategies to get somebody to know about and buy the next offering. So if I have somebody buying the like lowest tier of A-B testing manual that's just the book and worksheets, obviously the next thing to do is to get them to buy the full course and they can upgrade to that. So there are two strategies that I have in place. One of them is you get a lifetime discount link in the receipt for the cost of the bundle and book. So, you know, you get that amount off, so you're not paying twice for the same thing. And then there's a follow-up email campaign for all the book purchasers that ask how you're doing with your business, if I can answer any questions, eventually I offer a 15-minute call, and then I mention that there's a full video course, and if you're struggling with the strategy or the operational issues, the video course is not just me, but my friend Patrick McKenzie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that email course wasn't in place at all. All you got was the receipt. You know what people do with the receipt? Archive, salt the earth, you're done. <laughs> you know? And so there wasn't much of a strategy. And I looked at that flowchart and I was like, this outlined a place where there's a weak point. And, and then I got two upgrades. <laughs> mm. It is very easy to do this once you already have the system. This is very much like three to 400 level tactic. You have to already have like a solid positioning and at least a handful of products. But when it's time to fit them together into a more holistic system, you should be thinking about the next sale, right? Not just, okay, well, you came in and you bought draft evidence. It was 50 bucks. Could you be a client for draft revised? That costs more like a Honda Civic. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so let me got to figure that out. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If somebody's in, in kind of your shoes a few years back where they, they have a service and let's assume it's selling well and they want to dabble in kind of a product, what's the first one? Do you write the book first? Do you create the course first? What do you recommend? Uh, write the book first, but serialize it if you can. So if you... You know, the A-B testing manual is, I think, like 320 pages. I know this will shock your audience, but I did not write that all at once. <laughs> what I actually did with that one was I put out an offering called Revise Weekly where I it was a paid mailing list where I gave you a lesson about A-B testing every week. And then I put up pre-orders for the A-B testing manual with a little checkbox that 
uh, when checked, gave you a trial of Revise Weekly for a month. And so that was how I got my initial. I basically got paid to write Revise Weekly by the people that were going to get serialized Revise Weekly. And then I gave them a copy of if they bought the full course, they got the book for free. Anybody who was subscribed to Revise Weekly got the book for free. And then I added in like 10 or 11 more lessons on top of that. So instead of writing, you know, 45 lessons right off the bat and not being able to test it and, and update it, they also, that audience acted as my technical editors so that I didn't bring out some busted, horrific thing that wasn't actually able to help people well. It was already kind of market tested. So for anybody who subscribed to Revise Weekly a year and a half ago, congratulations and thank you. Yeah, this is turning into like a really, really meta case study on, on conversion rate optimization, isn't it? <laughs> I guess I'd expect uh, yeah. nothing less. Oh, and I optimized the heck out of that checkbox, man. You wouldn't believe. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. Listen, Nick, this has been a real blast. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Where can folks find you if they want to look you up? Uh, you can take a look at my website slash publishing empire, I guess, at draft.nu. If you want to look at the A-B testing manual, it's at abtestingmanual.com. There's a field at the bottom of draft.nu to sign up for my weekly letters. And hopefully it'll be as entertaining as this podcast was. I got to go look up how and why your dog walked into a, a boxing gym right after this. Do it. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Take care. Hey, it's Ahmed here again, just to quickly wrap up this conversation. I know we went in a number of different directions, but you know what? When you've got Nick DeSabato on the line, you got to go down the rabbit hole. So I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. The thing I really want you to do now is I want you to go and look at what Nick has built over at Draft. Go to draft.nu or head over to the, to the show notes for this episode at forecast.fm slash draft, and we'll have a link in there. I want you to look at what he's built, the mix of products, the mix of services, and how it all fits together. You don't need to have access to Nick's top secret mind map to see the connections here. It really does fit together like a puzzle. And I think if you look at that and you study it and you think about how you can apply that kind of a model to your business, you're going to come up with a bunch of really, really smart ideas. Again, the notes to this episode are at forecast.fm slash draft. If you're a new listener, do me a favor, head over to forecast.fm slash iTunes, click on the link there and subscribe to the show. And that way I'll show up in your feed. If you're an existing listener and you haven't yet left us a rating or a review, what are you doing? You're killing me here. Please, please go and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes at forecast.fm slash iTunes. It helps more people discover the show and I would be very, very happy. Thank you so much for listening. 